You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Uh, still working through First Peter uh, now in the end of the third and, and all of the fourth chapter, and we'll have one more week. We'll wrap it up with First uh, Peter chapter five. Um, it's, it's a big passage. There's more uh, that I could say than I will say tonight. But um, before I launch into what I wa- want to say, it's important to, to keep in mind uh, the context when ex- studying an excerpt like this. We took a, a, a break last week looking at Acts chapter two, so it's particularly important to remind you of what we've been reading uh, in First Peter. And it's a letter, you know, I mean, these letters were meant to be read in one uh, sitting. And if you read it, I did this, I printed it out without any of the chapters and verses and the headings that the Bibles uh, uh, that you buy give a letter like this and just read it like the original readers might have read it all in one sitting. And when you do this, um, you, you notice um, some themes in new ways that you might not when you're reading it sort of by chapter and verse and the, you know, getting sort of atomized in the sort of small parts of the letter. But thinking of the whole context of the letter, what you see is that uh, Peter's writing to a people who are potentially really, really scared. And they're scared of the surrounding society that they live in that's hostile toward them because of their identity as followers of of Christ. In fact, their neighbors seem to be, to say the least, insulting them. Um, But they might be physically injuring them. They're probably bringing them uh, to trial before civil authorities. And they might even be threatening death. That's the type of letter that Peter's writing to an audience like this. Uh, And so Peter's writing into this situation, and in writing into this situation, he reminds the people several things. That their God is ultimately in power, he's in control, he's sovereign, and that they were chosen by this God who keeps them like a shepherd keeps sheep. And uh, that an amazing eternity awaits them with their God. Some beautiful poetic language, of course, that we looked at in chapter 1 that describe what awaits them as a treasure locked up in heaven for them. And that Christ, their Savior, also experienced suffering. Just as they experienced suffering, their Savior also experienced suffering, and even more so, and that God the Father allowed his pain... And that pain was an example for his followers uh, who would also one day suffer. And it's the atonement, which is the reconciliation between God and uh, mankind at his death that brings the the peace that they might have to persevere through even the greatest suffering. These are all sort of themes that have already come up throughout the letter. He also wants them, uh, with all this in mind about the suffering and what they know about um, their God and who he is and what Christ has done for them, Peter also wants them to be, the audience of his letter, he wants them to be mindful of their conduct amidst their suffering because their conduct will either bring honor or dishonor to God is the way that Peter puts it. Their conduct can bear witness to their hope for even those who would persecute them. 
The, the classic memory verse is in our passage today. This is something that you've probably heard people cite before, but is something helpful for you to, to commit to memory, which is 3.15, in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for the reason, for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Uh, he's speaking to uh, people who might be called to give a defense, uh, for fear of uh, at least uh, persecution uh, societally, but maybe even uh, physical harm. And so their hope when uh, facing torment might be the, the, on the foundation that uh, they're, uh, they're, they're giving a witness to their persecutors who also might come to faith through their uh, witness, the hope that they have. Uh, and it, that could pave the path for them to hear the gospel if, and this is the important point that we see in 3.15, it's done with civility and hope. Uh, if they have civility and hope amidst the suffering, even their persecutors might come to faith. And of course, our passage today repeats many of these themes. Uh, there's too much for me to cover, as I said, uh, in this passage, and so I'm admittedly skipping some major subpoints that we could devote whole sermons to. If anyone wants to talk to me about the bits about Noah or Christ preaching to the dead, see me after church. I was going to dedicate a little bit of my sermon to it, but I just felt like it was a distraction from what I want to focus on, and it's important, but we just uh, have very little time, and I'd love to talk to you about it uh, in another setting. When studying uh, this passage, though, this week, I was particularly struck by Peter's focus on how our suffering relates to Christ's suffering. How our suffering relates to Christ's suffering. And a good summary of uh, what I'm talking about is right there in chapter 4, verse 1. Since, therefore, Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Uh, we, we can arm ourselves with the hope of the knowledge that we have about Christ who also suffered in the flesh, that his suffering is connected to ours. So you could say that the main point of our passage is this, that we suffer because we have hope that Christ suffered for us. We suffer because we have hope that Christ suffered for us. Another way to say this is that we suffer for the gospel. We suffer for the good news of Jesus Christ. And yet, the flip side of that is the gospel also gives us hope and reassurance while we're in our suffering. Peter's basically calling us to be joyful sufferers, uh, sort of oxymoron, but in our suffering that we might rejoice and find joy because of the knowledge that we have about who Jesus Christ is and what he's done for us. We shouldn't, and we shouldn't be surprised also when we suffer, either for the faith or just in life in general. We ought to take it for granted that we will uh, have pain. Actually, God the Father might be allowing us to suffer. And our suffering can be a setting, as I said before, for, for sharing the good news of who Jesus Christ is. So let's just draw one bit of our passage today to focus on, uh, to see what I'm saying. And this comes uh, at, toward the end of... or. Or in the, yeah, toward the end of chapter 4, verses 12 through 14, if you want to look at the, the passage there in your bulletin or in your Bibles. This is uh, chapter 4, verses 12, 13, and 14. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice 
insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. So in other words, as I said, don't be shocked no matter how bad things get. Don't be surprised when the suffering comes. Your pain is not strange, but to be expected as a normal thing. And we ought to rejoice because we are suffering like Jesus Christ himself suffered. And his glory is revealed through our suffering. When we are insulted by the world, God is blessing us. And so when we receive the insult from fellow mankind, know that God, on the other hand, is blessing us. And while life uh, takes away our uh, dignity, we're given the gift of God's spirit. And so I want to reemphasize that it's in the midst of suffering that Christ's glory is revealed. It's right there in the pain that Christ's glory is revealed, meaning our suffering is actually a key component of gospel proclamation. The ministry of Paul the Apostle is a good example of what uh, Peter is describing. Just think of Ephesians when Paul writes, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. I mean, he was literally in prison for bearing witness uh, to Jesus Christ for the gospel. Or in Colossians, when he tells them, remember my chains, he's talking about the same thing. And we see this uh, most especially in 2 Timothy, which many people regard as his final letter, his last word, where he's awaiting uh, potentially execution in Rome, where he says to uh, Timothy, his protege, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. He's equating suffering with the gospel and its proclamation, but also uh, saying, don't be ashamed of the fact that, number one, Christ also suffered, and I'm suffering. And then he says, as for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering, literally as if his blood were spilling. And the time of my departure has come. I've fought the good fight, I've finished the race, I've kept the faith. And then he says towards the end of 2 Timothy, the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. So even when uh, feeling uh, the, the pain of evil almost as if in a lion's mouth, praising God and worshiping him right there. So here's a man who continues to rejoice in suffering even after betrayal, desertion, uh, imprisonment, and imminent execution. And yet he knows and is confident in his ultimate destiny with God. And he keeps praising and worshiping God. Indeed, he shares the story of Jesus Christ to those who are imprisoning him, One of his jailers in Philippi, we know indeed, came to faith uh, in Jesus Christ. I sometimes uh, and not often encounter this uh, type of attitude when I visit people who are sick or or dying. As I said, sometimes 
but actually not the majority. Many people in the hospital uh, are, uh, of course, we understand distressed, impatient, or sad, as you might expect, for the things that they're going through. And by the way, I've recently become convinced that I'm uh, such a person. I'm perpetually impatient and uh, seeing myself as a victim when stressed. You know, why me, et cetera, that kind of thing. Why is this happening? Why are all the bad things happening to me? You know, that, so I, I totally get it when people are like that in the hospital. But there's a small minority of truly hopeful Christians that I sometimes visit. They're often a blessing to visit. And they, they literally sing or speak God's praises when I'm coming to visit them. And I can tell the difference when somebody's putting on a sort of phony show because the minister's visiting them and they get in the spiritual talk. But there's some people where it just flows out of them naturally. You can tell. And some of them, even on their deathbed, when death is right there facing them. And if it's not the, the sick or the dying person, sometimes it's a family member a close relative, or even a spouse right there at their bed, bedside, who is the one who's rejoicing amidst the pain. Um, what they have uh, is usually hope in Jesus Christ and an eternity with him. And this isn't some sort of easy, as I said, sort of sentimental kind of don't worry, be happy sort of bumper sticker kind of attitude. It's something altogether different. Um, I know that I've said after visiting someone like this, Lord, help me with my attitude. You know, when I'm at my deathbed, would that I could be like that person with so much hope, who even is bearing witness to me of the good news of Jesus Christ, when they're right there dying, and I've been strengthened by their witness when I visit such a person. I even had a recent conversation with a, a faithful person whose spouse just died, I mean, the day or two after the death, over the phone, and it wasn't trite platitudes. The person had an obvious uh, confidence in their spouse's faith and were speaking God's praises to me over the phone, was delighted uh, to pray, obviously sad for the loss that they have, but right there in the greatest pain of a life shared with another person, still having hope and singing God's praises. So how do we apply uh, this passage on suffering, and you could say Paul's example, or the example of the type of uh, people that I've just given you, how do we apply this to our lives? Well, first I want to uh, address the suffering itself and acknowledge that, that you suffer, that you are a sufferer. It might not actually be due to persecution, it might be suffering from just the sort of mundane stresses of life, all the little things, or maybe it is a, a big thing, and maybe it has nothing to do with your Christian identity, but regardless, all of us, equally distributed, suffer for various reasons. And then again, if you truly live in light of the hope that you have in uh, Jesus Christ, people might begin to notice, and they might become alienated from you when you don't join them in the sort of idolatry and debauchery that Peter lists in our passage today, or whatever our 21st century versions of it might be. Well, don't be surprised when you suffer. Take it for granted that it's a, a normal thing. And know that God might actually be allowing it in his sovereignty, which is not the answer we expect to the question of how we can 
you know, reconcile the existence of evil or suffering with an all-good, all-knowing, and all-powerful God. Usually people point to that very thing, the fact that there is suffering and pain in the world, and say, how could there be a God when these things are happening? But Peter doesn't, uh, Peter doesn't give us that answer. He says that God is actually involved in our suffering and not absent. And that's, a, that's good news. He's right there in the midst of our suffering. So we're to rejoice in it as an act of worship. And our current suffering, by the way, pales in comparison to any sort of eternal suffering that we might have if we reject Jesus Christ. Which is my uh, second big point about the proclamation. Rather than uh, complain, let us uh, praise God. Sing his praises of rejoicing when we're suffering. And you might actually, and I'm speaking to myself when I say this, you might actually find the pain to be more bearable when you do so versus having that sort of why me attitude that it's the people who seem to be praising God and their suffering who are able to get through it so much more easily. And when you're insulted by people, or by uh, life in general, whatever it sort of sends your way, know that God, on the other hand, is blessing you. And when you do this, you are a witness to a watching world. You have an attractive hope that most don't have. Hope in an eternal assurance. Your suffering is not meaningless, but it's actually meaningful. So just to uh, end my sermon, I want you to hear once again these final words of chapter 4, the very last line that actually kind of sums up everything that Peter's saying and what I've tried to say here in uh, this sermon quite well. And take this with you. You know, take this with you this week when, when someone insults you. Take this with you uh, when suffering comes your way. Let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator. Let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.